Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I speak with Ray McClanahan. Ray's a legend in the world of foot health, and it was a pleasure having him in Ottawa for a weekend to talk about how we can continue spreading the message of health when it comes to feet, and how to create a better future for the footwear industry. On the podcast, we talk about footwear, bunions, empowering people with responsibility, and we also talk about his story of how he came to be where he is today, which is very interesting. I really enjoyed the conversation with Ray, and I hope you find the information interesting and useful in your own life. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the TFC Health Nerd Program. Our team realized that to truly address the health problem, you need to go to the root cause, and that begins with how professionals are trained. We launched the program in 2019 and have created a tribe of almost 100 people from around the world that come from a variety of backgrounds but unite on a common mission to do better when it comes to health. The program has a constantly evolving information database of, uh, of knowledge, um, which is guided by the process of science and decentralized. So everyone that's completed basic training is able to then contribute to the curriculum. Tribe members are given the opportunity to teach TFC events after completing basic training and to contribute on research and um, instructor training teams. The next application window ends on January 7th for the June 2020 class of health nerds. And if you want more info about the program, you can visit thefootcollective.com and click on the health nerd tab, uh, or you can submit your application through TFC app. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by the Roasters Pack. Our team at TFC headquarters in Ottawa are big fans of coffee before before 11, 10 or 11 a.m. Um, and this Canadian company provides a unique subscription service that gives you three awesome coffees to your door each month and also gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that they come from. Head to the roasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, and you'll get seven bucks off your first month of any subscription, which start at 27 a month all in, including shipping and taxes. So it's a pretty solid deal. This episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear to and from seminars and workshops, they make super high quality hard cases that keep your electronics safe during travel. And you can check out their stuff at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors. Hope you enjoy this episode. Let's dig in. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet or the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Hello friends, Nick here. Welcome back for, to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On today's episode of Health Conversations, we have a really special guest. Um, today we're going to be chatting with Ray McClanahan. He is a podiatrist currently living in Portland and he's the inventor of Correctos. So um, Ray is the first member of the Academic Advisory Board for the Healthner Program and we were super grateful that Ray um, came down to Ottawa for the weekend to hang out and you know talk about the future of feet, foot health and just you know, changing the world of footwear, I think was a big trend this weekend. So Ray, thanks for being here and for chatting today. Um, I had an amazing time this weekend. So I did too, Nick. Thanks so much. My pleasure being here with you. Awesome, dude. So maybe start by introducing yourself. So if anyone in the audience doesn't know who you are, which maybe they've been living on under a rock for their whole life. Um, <laughs> but in the world of feet, Ray is a, like you really are a pioneer in the world of foot health and in, in terms of, you know, people that are because one of these things where I think the smartest people typically aren't the people on social media. Mm. And I think you're one of those people that has kind of found a bridge to be able to bring your clinical expertise and your knowledge and been able to kind of articulate that through the world of the internet, whether that's through your uh, YouTube videos, through Correctos or the um, Natural Foot Health Institute and all this kind of stuff. So maybe describe to people, you know, where you came from, what you're all about. Um, and then it would be cool to 
kind of do a brief history of how you got to where you are today and and also like the big disruptive moments in your practice in your life where it's like you realize you have to change things because mm. these inc- these uncomfortable times that I think we've both gone through are sometimes the times where you're like, wow, this is very exciting. It's the sucks because I just realized I was wrong for a long time. Yes. Um, but they're also really exciting because it's like you open up brand new doors. So yeah, maybe you should start by telling people who you are. You bet. Yeah, I, I'm actually originally from Washington State, and uh, I did spend six years in Alberta from sixth grade to what you guys call grade twelve. Right. Um, I think what kind of got me into this field more than anything is I love to move. I, I nice. love athletics and sports, and played everything in high school. Um, but as I was sharing over the weekend, I was a bit of a troubled kid in high school and got in a bit of trouble. And so I, I found long distance running and, um, essentially through the running, I, I, it helped myself physically and emotionally, but I, I kept breaking my body and a lot of people believe that running's hard on your body and it's just the nature of the beast. And, and of course I no longer believe that, but at the time I was suffering chronic injuries and, um, went on to college and ran track and field and also was chronically injured, spending all my time in the training room, spending all my time taking anti-inflammatory, searching for ways of being healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, fortuitous, fortuitously ran into a podiatrist at a road race and got to visiting with him a little bit and found out he was a podiatrist and I didn't know what a podiatrist was essentially. Right. So he invited me to his practice. <clears throat> Excuse me. I spent a great bit of time with him watching what he did and uh, at that point, I decided that was what I was going to pursue. Wow. So um, he had that big of an impact on you. He really like, did. I like what he does, how he does it, and I find it relevant. Exactly right. Um, cool. he, he was a runner, um, treating runners, and um, I saw that as a pathway of not only helping myself with my chronic injuries, but actually helping other runners. Um, invited me into his home, invited me into his practice. We spent a bunch of time together. He's one of my closest friends currently. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I took his advice, um, went off to podiatry school out in Philadelphia, spent four years out there. And uh, learn traditional podiatry, and um, which is maybe we can dive in during the podcast quite a bit different from how you and I both see the world now. Right. Um, but essentially, that was my foundation for my interest in foot health. When I went to Portland, Oregon, did a two-year surgical residency. At the time, I believed in surgery. I thought a lot of people needed it. I thought that was going to be the way I was going to help people. And that's what you were taught, right? Exactly. So just to rewind for a sec, podiatry, what is the path? So do you get an M- MD? No. Um, it's similar to dentistry, if you will. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So you'll go, you'll go your four-year undergraduate. You'll get whatever your pre pre medical degree is. Mm-hmm. Take the MCAT test and then go on to podiatry school, of which I think there's nine or ten in the country now. Um, That's not very many. It's not very many. Podiatry is actually a small community. I think it's less than twenty thousand people practicing. Um, but essentially, podiatry is like dentistry. Okay. So you don't go to dental school and change your mind at the end and decide you want to deliver babies or right. you know, <laughs> operate on someone's hips. So right. um, you know from the get-go you're going to be a foot and ankle specialist. Yeah. Um, the degree that we get is a DPM degree, Doctor of Podiatric Medicine. Gotcha. It confuses people. A lot of people think we are an MD. You mm-hmm. know, they think that we're just an orthopedist that works on the feet. But it's an entirely different uh, degree with a similar medical track. In fact, some of the podiatry colleges share their first two years of pre-medical studies with um, osteopathy. Yeah, they do. So it's it's all the same stuff: pharmacology, biochemistry, all that. Right. What changes is in your clinical years, your third and fourth years, you start to actually work on people. And in podiatry school, you're cutting the corns and calluses and working on bunions and so forth. Right. Um, so once you're finished with that four-year degree, you get your DPM degree. Most states require a residency. Most states, it's at least one year. The entire profession is pushing for a three-year mandate for everybody to have three years of residency training, most of which is surgical. Hmm. 
and not to say people don't need surgery, people do, but I think overall the emphasis is on surgery. Right. When you go to school, you, your thought process is that's what I'm preparing myself to offer people. It's almost like you should get a year of natural foot health, uh, almost like a residency, and then two years of surgery, because then you have a context to put surgery into. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it's lacking, Nick. There is right. no natural foot um, conversation, let alone education. In fact, my mentor, Dr. William Rossi, who I was sharing with you a bit over the weekend, um, would write letters to the podiatry colleges asking them why they didn't implement something like you just suggested. Why don't we teach these people what's natural before we teach them how to address pathology? Right. And it doesn't exist. And sadly, that's why a lot of people going to the podiatrist don't really understand they're getting conventional, traditional medical treatment. Right. They're getting allopathic derived like techniques that it's so weird that we completely ignore the cause of why all these things happen and yet are completely satisfied with treating the symptoms or the end result or the dysfunction or the damage that gets caused by them. But, and I really, you know, we, we, this was like a string of conversations that we had is just, there's, these people are very well-intentioned, right? When you go mm -hmm. into podiatry, you are like, I see foot problems or I've had foot problems. And we talked about a lot of people go into these fields based on personal experience. They've had their own personal issues. You know, I know a lot of physios have gone into it because they're like, yeah, I got injured. I did physio. I found it helped. So I, I, you know, I liked movement. And so I thought that was a good path. And so these people go in well-intentioned thinking that they're going to learn what they need to know to help people. Yep. And I think it's this, you know, I got kind of disenfranchised after physio school where it's the same thing. It's like, okay, this is how you treat a rotator cuff problem. And then you're kind of like waiting. You're like, okay, okay, that's cool. But what causes this? Mm. Like we're not, are we, and I think it's like this weird assumption that the body just breaks down yeah. and we're there to fix it. And there's no conversation about we're the ones breaking the body down. Like what are we, where's the mismatch of what we're doing to create these problems? And it's, it's very strange that it's not a conversation thread. It really is. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. So you went through podiatry school, you started a practice and then how did, how did that kind of uh, change as you started? Like how, basically where was the threshold where you started to go down a different path? Mm, for sure. So I moved out to Portland, Oregon in 1995. I did a two year surgical residency operating on um, people all week long, basically taking care of them postoperatively, lots of hospital care, lots of infections, diabetic work, um, elective foot surgery. Got into practice um, 1997 and um, started doing what I was trained to do. Mm -hmm. Lots of operations, um, making lots of orthotics, treating people without addressing the cause, you know, right. trying to make their symptom go away. And to your point, if if people understand what allopathic care is all about, they, they'll realize if you want natural care or functional care, you're going to have to ask for it. And most mm -hmm. podiatrists are not are not educated or not set up to offer that. Right. So I did a lot of that work. And... Um, Early on, I, I found some of my results dissatisfying, literally. You know, these people were coming back chronically for stuff. Um, and that's not my mindset or your mindset. It's to heal people. Right. Put yourself out of business every yeah, time you treat someone. Absolutely. So um, everything was going along just fine until 1999, or at least I thought fine, you know, based on what I knew at the time. 1999, I read a, uh, an article in a, in a podiatry journal known as podiatrymanagement.com. Mm -hmm. And it's a trade journal. We talk about you know what's new in medical products, what's new in billing, difficult cases, you know, getting colleagues input and so forth. And this one particular 
title of an article caught my eye. It was called Why Shoes Make Normal Gait Impossible. Oh, that's one of my favorite articles. Mine too. Rocked my world. It lit, changed my world. It changed everything about my world, my work, my the way I approach my own body. Hmm. Um, but essentially, it was written by a pioneer in podiatry that largely was ignored in the field of podiatry. Um, his message didn't resonate with what the overall majority of the profession wanted to pursue. Right. And the reason why that title caught my eye is, had you come to see me at the time, I was putting everybody on the treadmill, I had the cameras, I had an idea about what I was looking for and what I was gonna do to correct it or, or, or uh, mediate it. And so as I read this article and he's talking about footwear and photographing cultures throughout the world that don't do what we do to our feet with footwear <laughs> and profiling the, the percentage of, of problems that they get compared to the problems that we get. The APMA uh, surveyed, American Podiatric Medical Association surveyed 1,000 Americans, I think it was in 2014. 77% of them reported foot pain. That's so insane. It is insane. So, I mean, there's tons of people out there that have foot pain. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of them are given the wrong reason for why they have pain. Right. But essentially, after I read Dr. Rossi's article, I, I literally changed my practice overnight. Good for you. Because that was probably a really... <laughs> like that would make that makes you uncomfortable when things disrupt like like i always tell people when i come back from a course and i feel like a weird sensation in my stomach or i feel like this air this cloud of confusion i used to think i used to not really know why but now i realize it's like it's telling me that something i'm doing is not the optimal way of doing it and i don't know how to switch it or i'm gonna have to swallow some things you know that i that it's it, it creates work for you, but it's work in a direction that you're like, this is progress or yes. growth. And like the most uncomfortable times are the times of most growth. So, so what did switching your practice look like? Like what is, how does that manifest itself? Yeah. Well, essentially I was consulting for a group called uh, Superfeet, uh, right. the over-the-counter uh, footbeds, uh, subsidiary of Northwest Podiatric Labs. So that's a podiatric lab company that makes orthotics. Um, what that looked like for me was I had to resign from that position because what Dr. Rossi taught me is the the human foot in its natural state needs to be spread widest at the ends of the toes. Right, like a baby's foot. Right, and I'd never heard that concept. I'd never even made the connection that we come into the world this way and cultures throughout the world, places I've been, Africa, South America, Asia, they, they, the adults still have that baby-shaped foot. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Rossi profiled, and according to his statistics, four to five percent of those patients, of those populations, will get a foot problem versus however many seventy, eighty percent of our population gets a foot problem. So, so what it looked like for me was I had to resign from my position at Superfeet, mostly because I, I understood what Dr. Rossi was teaching that if you can spread your toes, you probably don't need to support your arch most of the time. Mm -hmm. If you're squeezing your toes, your arch isn't going to be functional; it's going to be weak, and you might feel better if you put something up under it. right? Um, but I realized I wanted to pursue what Dr. Rossi was teaching me. I wanted to see if we could strengthen people's feet, align them naturally. And so this is what we did. Instead of um, supporting people, we started actually challenging people. Um, and it took a lot of education, as you can imagine. People had right. an expectation about what I was gonna offer them that would be based on what the traditional podiatric community would offer them. So when I started talking Dr. Rossi uh, Dr. Rossi's style and his principles, it took a lot longer to get people to wrap their brain around why I'm going to ask them to spread their toes, wear a flat, thin shoe, and do some exercises, mm -hmm. and why I wasn't going to operate on their bunion. And we'll talk about more about why that is when we talk about bunions. But essentially what it meant for me, Nick, is I needed to focus on footwear. Right. 
And the in, there's so many interesting layers of podiatric education, but one of them is we put the barefoot on our treatment table and we look at the barefoot looking for the cause of the problem or maybe not looking for the cause, but looking for the diagnosis that we can treat. Mm-hmm. While we leave the cause sitting on the floor by the chair that the patient came in and sat in. Right. So as I started looking at footwear, my whole world was blown away, <laughs> completely blown away. And the way we look at the footwear nowadays is if a patient comes in, we we show them the baby footprint. We tell them that is natural anatomy, which for most adult Americans is brand new information. Right. And this this is this is shocking to me, um, which is why I hope you guys like you and I can actually properly educate people about really what natural foot anatomy is all about. Mm-hmm. So as I understood that from Dr. Rossi's work, we started telling people, if you measure your footwear based on the current system, the Brannock device, which for your audience, Nick, is actually a device built for fashion footwear, yet we use it for athletic footwear. And I think most people have seen these. are these metal metal uh, kind of platforms that you pretty much, it's what you measure your foot with um, at most footwear stores, right? Yes. With that thing that slides, yes. which is at the base of your big toe, which isn't even the widest part of your foot. And it is. And if you measure shoes the wrong way, then everything else that follows that is going to continue down that path. Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. So. Crazy. What we started doing, instead of encouraging people to get their number and their letter based on the Brannock device, we started um, pulling the removable piece out of the shoe, the sock liner, or the insole, and having people stand on that. And um, I'm sure that visual is very powerful. For, for everybody, for all the patients. Um, when parents bring kids in, it's powerful for the parent who wants to do best for their kid, thinks they're right. choosing the right shoes. Um, over the last 20-some years that we've been photographing this on every patient, about 10% of people fit their footwear when they stand on the liner. 90% of people, and these aren't even people spreading their toes necessarily. These are people whose toes are already deformed, but they're standing on the sock liner and their, their foot spreads beyond it, which for your audience, if they're following us, this means since the upper part of the shoe is the same shape as the liner, if your foot is spilling beyond the liner, the upper is gonna deform your foot. Right. And it might not even be painful, which is also a compelling point to make. Um, so, we start out with the education. We start out by showing them that 90% of them coming in have a foot select, footwear selection that doesn't fit their natural foot shape. And that's that's principle number one. Yeah. It if, has to start there because that that's really like the rate limiting step. It is. And it's so, you're right. If you focus, you can focus on the dysfunction. Like I remember Greg Cook said this protect, correct, develop sequence. And I, and the way he explained it at one of these conferences was so logical in terms of like a sequence where if you, if there's a problem, you can identify the problem, diagnose it, and work to correct it. But if you don't even understand what causes it and you're not addressing that, then you're not doing anything that's sustainably gonna be effective, right? Like you're kinda like, it's like someone walking across a road that's peppered with glass every day and then coming to you because they cut their foot and just like, okay, I'll help you, I'll put some Band-Aids on, and never telling them not to walk across the glass shards. Yes. And it's so, when you understand it, it seems so obvious. Like I always, I'm, I still puzzle at, okay, something that's so obvious, how to us, right? Which doesn't require that much information. It's just like literally looking at the foot, looking at the shoe and being like, those two shapes are not the same, right? Like you can't put a triangle in a circular hole. And so how does, you know, it's one of these weird things where how is this not intuitive? And like, there's so many smart people in the world of medicine and rehab and it just blows my mind that it's not, it just, it, it really hurts my brain sometimes. Like oh. I struggle for words. Oh, ditto, <laughs> ditto, same here. Um, and after all these years, I keep hoping that 
this will become a cornerstone of our shoe fitting throughout the throughout North America. Right. But to your point, still, this is information that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Um, which is why I'm grateful that we're partnering to get this out to the world because, as you said, it's a cornerstone. It is. In fact, if you came to visit us in our clinic, we rarely do anything to anybody other than teach them this, teach them about footwear, which we can dive into, show them that they're 90% of the time their footwear is not the shape of their foot. Right. And then we give them prompts and exercises to actually rehab themselves back. I can't remember the last time I prescribed an anti-inflammatory. Um, I rarely give injections. I, I ship out all of the surgery that needs to be done, and sometimes it does need to be done. Mm-hmm. But whereas it used to be maybe 75% of my practice, it might be 5% of my practice right. now. So really we talk to people, and we just help them to understand these concepts. And when we do, they look at us and they say, this just makes so much sense you know why why haven't i heard this before or where did you learn this from and why isn't everybody doing this right um so it's it's really compelling but the gratifying thing is just that education heals so many people i agree it lets them heal themselves you bet that's even a better way to describe it and i think this and it also takes away you know when we talk about how you know, I used to think the primary modality was movement, right? When someone comes in to treat me uh, to get treated, when I was when I was practicing um, physio on a regular basis, it was like my primary modality is movement. But now I, I've shifted that to be like my primary modality is empowerment, mm-hmm. and the primary mode of empowerment is just education. If you let someone, if you help someone understand why the problem is there, and you just leave the door open for them to f- discover through experimentation their own solution. That is such a different paradigm than I am the person you need to come to for advice versus, okay, you have a problem. I'm on your team. I acknowledge you as a human that has an issue, but you know, treating the human instead of just the problem means helping them understand what's actually going on instead of just giving them a solution and expecting them to be perfect with implementing it without any context, right? right? It's like, yeah. oh, do this exercise. And I think a lot of physios do that. It's like, do these exercises, three reps, sets of 10, and you should get better. But if the patient doesn't know why they're doing it, if they have, if it's not actually like, they can't draw the connection of I'm doing this because, then you lose them. And I think when you teach people about footwear, you enable them to be decision maker, really effective decision makers every single time they buy footwear. And you basically let them treat their own feet every time they buy footwear, which is very powerful. Yes. And the fact that people intuitively can understand it because it's simple, it's visual, right? Foot shaped like this, shoes shaped like this, yep. not the same. Look for shoes that are more shaped like feet. And maybe we'll talk about the four thing, like the primary things you let people know to look for in footwear. But when you know the truth is on your side and it's simple so that a 10 year old can understand it, that is a powerful motivator to think that we have hope, right? It might not be the mainstream thinking, but it's so obvious. We just have to pick the right avenue to go down to reach the most people in a way that resonates with them and, and help them change the story. Because everyone's been told this medicalized story of, you know, your foot breaks down or genetics or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so you almost have to de-teach. You have to help people unlearn so much crap. Absolutely right. Yeah. And it's nice that the stuff that they end up learning is actually really simple because it would be an even bigger task if you had to layer new complexity on top of it. Yes, it would. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. interesting. Um, we're at the end of this week, like, it's easy to start to chat about the the silly stuff that we do, but when you talk about how simple and powerful some of the simple advice can be, it makes you really excited. It kind of gets you back fired up. Yes, it does. So, so when someone comes to you and says, okay, the shoes I wear right now are not good for my feet. And obviously there's a continuum, right? You have pure functional footwear and then you have 
footwear that I don't know what it is, but it's really not good for your feet. And there's a spectrum. So mm. there's a lot of different uh, footwear that fits along that spectrum. And it's not about having the perfect shoe. I always tell people it's every time you buy a shoe, try and look at a better shoe. Try and look for more boxes to check off. So what features of footwear do you, when someone comes in and says, okay, well, I need to buy shoes. Um, what do I look for in shoes? Mm -hmm. So what I learned from Dr. Rossi, as well as a couple of other physicians that whose writing has been out in the medical literature for over a hundred years. Um, first thing I usually will talk about is the heel elevation. Right. And a lot of people think that that's necessary to absorb shock and so forth. Um, but what the scientific literature is clear on is it actually shortens our calf muscles and our Achilles tendons. Yes. And so, um, and I always, I always present science if people want the papers, but usually it's, it's common sense. Usually they yeah. can see it and they common can, sense is not common. Though. <laughs> not at all. You're absolutely right. Um, so we, we share with, well, it's, it's interesting. I mostly treat runners and athletes and they all come in and they're always talking about tight calves all the time. They're always talking about their either at the physio or they're stretching their calves. And the, the reality that I try to get them to wrap their brain around is if you go to the gym and you stretch your calves for 20 minutes, but then you spend the rest of your day in a shoe with an elevated heel, you really didn't fix anything you yeah. know what i mean exactly but we used to do that in college we'd wear these elevated heel running shoes until we went to run track and then we'd wear a flat shoe and our calves would get Ooh, all that's even more dangerous that's horrible <laughs> um so essentially we get people understanding that if you chronically wear that and by the way most of your audience is is probably probably wearing that kind of shoe right now unless they're on board with what you're teaching right it's probably 50 50 i oh. mean there's i think a lot of people well who knows I, there's no way of telling but i think a lot of people have because I emphasize, I always try to emphasize the flat shoe. It's such a simple change, right? Like I always tell people, especially that have tight ankles. It's like, you're right. If you literally work on your ankle mobility for 30 minutes and then you literally spend 10 hours doing ankle tightening work, do you really think you're going to win that battle? Exactly. And it's, yeah. and it's funny because the simplest things like going to a flat shoe is fairly simple, right? You just, next time you buy a shoe, buy one that's flat, you automatically do a massive, you are literally just giving yourself the opportunity to explore dorsiflexion with things like gait or when you're moving around. And at, and at the least, you're not shortening your calf. Exactly. And you're right, it yeah. is common sense. Yeah, problem with shortening the calf, I mean, it's, there's multitudes of problems, but it also affects your arch function significantly. You know, So we talk about that first. Next thing we talk about, I learned from Dr. Phil Hoffman, who wrote a really great paper in 1905. It's on our website. 1905. It's funny I, how the, the most impactful wisdom is, is not new stuff. It's not. It's not at all. In fact, one of my good friends, Dr. Mark Kukazala, talks, talks about nothing new. Un, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Somebody's already talked about it, written about it, created it. Um, and that's another layer that really shocked me um, is that this stuff has been around now for 120 years, if not more, <laughs> and and so many people don't know about it, you know. Yeah. So, Dr. Ro Dr. Hoffman did what Dr. Rossi did. He traveled all over the world. He went to the Philippines. He went to Africa. He went to island nations. And his whole goal was to see if their feet are any different than ours. What are their problems? Why do they get their problems? And overwhelmingly. Um, the conclusion of his paper, and by the way, we rewrote his paper. It's on the Natural Running Center site, and it's free. It's a free download. Um, a bunch of us got together. His paper is a big, long paper. If you've, if you've read it, it's got a bunch of graphs and data and so forth and mm -hmm. you know stuff that people don't necessarily want to wade through. Um, so we rewrote it. But what I learned from Dr. Hoffman, in keeping with Dr. Rossi's work, is when he compared those cultures to what we do in industrialized nations with the elevated heel and another feature called toe spring. Yeah, that's a double whammy. It's the double whammy. Um, 
if toe spring for the audience is where the tips of the toes are held above the ground surface or above the support surface. So when you look at shoes that are on the wall, 95% of them are going to have a toe spring and probably a rigid toe spring, which means that your toes are never engaging the ground. Right. As and why do they put in toe spring in shoes? So I've heard several different reasonings. The reasoning that makes the most sense to me and the one that's been around the longest we talked about last night, which is back when they first started making shoes, they made them really robust and you know stiff. Right. And um, if you make a shoe with a stiff sole that's flat, you'll create a dysfunctional gait. Right. So your big toe can extend. Exactly. So the I I hear one of the reasons is we needed people to be able to roll through. So you got to give them like a yeah exactly. Yeah. The other reason I hear, and sadly the podiatry profession embraces this and says it's a good thing. They believe it. Some of them believe it rocks you through your gait. So they think they talk about it taking pressure off of the metatarsophalangeal joints or the joints where the toes meet the metatarsal bones. But actually, if you look at the studies, it does the opposite. Yeah, and that's like saying, oh, let's take pressure off your knee joints and get you in a wheelchair all day. Precisely. Like, I, I think it's just flawed logic. It, t- it completely is. Um, the down- There's several downsides of the toe spring. The biggest downside that Dr. Hoffman pointed out is if you chronically hold your toes above the support surface, the tendons on the front of your calf and the top of your foot will get short, just right. like an elevated heel will shorten the back of your body. Mm-hmm. So this, this is what really started blowing me away when I started understanding why all these people have arch function, arch dysfunction rather. Right. Um, so we've shortened our calf muscles on the back, we've shortened our calf muscles on the front, and it's not just the fact that those muscles get short and hold the toes chronically above the support surface. The little arch muscles are basically fighting against both of those big muscle groups to be able to do their work. Right, and they're positionally inhibited because exactly. your toes are extended and yeah, it's so crazy. You you basically you you positionally inhibit them so that they have almost no length tension relationship remaining to actually do their job. Exactly right. That's yeah. so crazy. It's totally crazy. Um, and people can understand that too. The the cool thing about all this is people can understand it if you describe yes. it to them. They can see it, and that's the cool thing about the work that we're doing. It's not we're not we're not talking about internal organs or any kind of you know hormone in the body that we would have to do additional testing for it right. you can actually show people this and that's a, that's the most exciting part of the work for me i agree it's not abstract not at all I, they don't have to put our faith in us or biomechanical theory they can look at their own body they can see what they have been unknowingly doing to themselves mm-hmm. um the the bigger thing um perhaps for the problems that i see is not just the calf shortening the anterior uh calf shortening and the over of the arch muscles which you just spoke about when your toes get chronically held above the support surface, the fat pad that is supposed to sit under the metatarsal heads will actually displace itself forward. Wow, I never realized that. And it will go under the t- under an area we call the sulcus. Hmm. So when I see the patients coming in and they've got a big callus under the ball of their foot or they've got um, a painful neuroma or the capsule of one of their toe bone joints is sore, I, I put them up in the treatment table. I, ask them to relax and invariably most of them will have what we call um, extensor dominance and for the audience members what that means is the calf muscles on the front of your leg which become tendons that attach on the very last toe bone will actually get tight from that toe spring just like a calf muscle will get tight i see it all the time the extensor tendons almost like pop out flare out of the skin because they're under tension absolutely flat 
Absolutely. And, and the problem there is when they're like that, the fat pad is not where it's supposed to be and the arch muscles can't function. So it's, it's a dysfunctional position, which most people are trying to function well from. So what I do with those patients is, um, I sit them in the treatment table. They look at their prominent extensor tendons. I point it out to them and then I will take my thumb and I'll push on whatever area hurts. It could be their sesamoid bones. It could be their neuroma. It could be a joint. And there will be very little padding between my thumb and whatever hurts them. And I'll point out to them, you've got a millimeter or two of skin mm -hmm. between my thumb and whatever hurts. I then take my other thumb and I simulate what a metatarsal pad does, which I love. Um, and for the audience, a metatarsal pad is not a classical arch support. It supports the metatarsal arch and not the medial longitudinal arch. But right. when I take my thumb and I simulate what a metatarsal pad will do, the patient will see their extensor tendons go out to length. They will see their toes come down to neutral or flat, but then I will push under the ball of their foot on the tender area. And since we have reapproximated their fat pad, um, they can feel that. And then it gives them some hope that, oh, well, geez, no wonder I hurt there. I've been hammering my anatomy without the benefit of my own protective fat pad. Right. And that's perhaps one of the most exciting things for me to treat because I'm trained that when that happens, to ignore the fact that the shoe is causing all of this right. and put something into the shoe that's gonna cushion that area and ignore the cause. It's like we treat shoe problems to try, like we treat the problems that are byproducts of shoes and we keep doing that and going down this path without ever talking about, well, if we get rid of the shoe problem, that that actually will be, will self correct itself with probably minimal help. Almost always. Now, sadly, it doesn't happen immediately for a lot of people. And, you know, some folks have been doing this for decades. So a lot of times it's, it's years in the making, but it's worthwhile. It's inexpensive. It's natural. Right. And it works. Um, I'm not going to say 100% of the time because I'm careful to not say always or never. Right. I agree. But, I would but for the majority. Absolute majority. That's what really matters, right? Like you bet. You want to, I always tell people, we're kind of like a health heuristics company. We put information out there that can help the vast majority, 90 plus percent of people will benefit by implementing guidelines, right? It's not a specific thing where, okay, your knee pain needs this. It's, well, here are some common causes, really big overarching causes that cause a lot of knee pain. Take these things out. Like it's not addition. It's not do extra stuff. It's take these things out because these are the common patterns that we see that are creating this problem and then see what happens. And for 90% of people, you get them out of sitting, you get them doing a little bit of hip mobility work and get them spending time barefoot, guess what? Their knees feel better. And it's not yeah. like you needed to know the specific pathology or mechanical problems. Just take the obstacle, take the rock out of the shoe and the foot feels better. Yes. Right? And it's like, that's another thing that I really love is like, the more you go down this path of learning what, like when you really start to shift your thinking to root cause, you're like, holy shit, all this stuff is like very similar that causes all these few problems that we seem to all do because they're just culturally ingrained, like how, you know, the look we like in shoes, the fact that we spend all of our time sitting, not moving. These few things in this basket are what causes a multitude of different problems. Like 50 different symptoms can come from one single root cause. Well, it's no wonder treating the symptoms was complex because it can happen in any different way based on how this person uses their body and there's so many variables. But when you trickle back, you're like, wait a minute, this is actually the biggest thing that's causing all of these crazy problems. And you get them to try and address that or start to work on that and all these problems start to kind of just fall off the bandwagon. 
It's so beautiful to watch. I, every once in a while, I get approached by a magazine and they'll want me to do an article on five most common foot problems or whatever. And they'll want to take a foot diagram and have me point on the foot where plantar, whatever, you know, bunion. <laughs> or, and um, I always tell them that's really not valuable for your audience because right. um, they don't, what they don't really need, although we try to provide it, <clears throat> it's not the most important thing to get your diagnosis. Right. And this is where I think Americans and Canadians are conditioned. What's what's my problem? Yeah, and what's we obsess over that. We do, and 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 worse yet, then we go down the wrong path, asking what is my treatment instead of what caused me to get this problem. Yeah, um, but but it's and it's deeply ingrained, unfortunately. So I always turn down those opportunities, and I but I also try to take those opportunities to educate. I try right. to get the editor and the journalist to understand because I I believe. They want to help their audience. I really I do agree. believe that. Um, so I, I'm always careful to point out what you just eloquently pointed out, which is, no, we need to figure out why all of these things are happening mm -hmm. as opposed to get, leading people astray, thinking that their particular problem needs a particular treatment as right. opposed to what you just said, um, which is why we, we basically talk at the clinic all day, you know, because really the same story applies to most of what I see. Most of what I see is probably seven or eight common things almost every day. Right. There are the outliers here and there, but most of the time we're going to see typical things. And to your point, most of the time they all respond to the same kinds of things. Um, and it's so humbling and so straightforward and so simple. Right. It's really how we're built to begin with, which that's the part that not only discourages me, but gives me passion. Mm -hmm. It discourages me that we don't appreciate what we have and how brilliant what we have is. Right. I'm literally trained to tell people your feet are flawed. They're a part of your body that just didn't. I, I literally read this a month ago. A podiatrist said they just haven't evolved properly. And I'm like, I totally do not believe that. And actually, the more I think about evolution being a process of adaptation, you would think that we should be getting stronger and we should encourage that process as opposed to what we do. Right. We actually th believe their feet are weak and we need to do things to them. So to your point, it's really straightforward. Get to the cause. And if people can do that, most of the time they're not going to need treatment. However, I'm not at all opposed to doing both if it's appropriate. Right. In other There's words, a time and place. You bet. Um, there are a couple entities in the foot where I might give a cortisone shot, um, where there's abnormal tissue that we want to break up and get out. But I never give the shot without covering all the stuff that we're covering exactly. today. You know. But quite frankly, to your point, when we cover all the basics and fundamentals, most of the time they don't need any of it. Exactly. You know? Or and sometimes even I've I heard a story once where a lady was explained actually what was going on. And then within that context, they were given the option of cortisone shot with full consent, with full informed consent of what it's for, what are the pros, what are the cons. And by the end, she was the one who declined the cortisone mm -hmm. shot. She's mm -hmm. like, well, based on what you're telling me, that's not actually the better decision to make. Yeah, it's like, I, can, I understand the discomfort now. It's not going to, my foot's not going to explode. I don't really need something to cover up the message because now I know how to interpret the message. Yes. And I think that's, that's powerful. So yeah, it is really, once you have, when the power of how advanced the body is, is on your side, mm. like that's a good ally, you right? Bet. When you know the body is this ingenious thing that we really don't understand. I think our, our lack of understanding or obsession with trying to understand everything in, in this reductionist you know, paradigm is what leads us to think that we know better than the body. Mm. And it's this ego thing where it's like, oh, we, we know better than the body. Like evolution, despite it being millions of years, doesn't know as much as us. And it's like, it's innately human silliness. Um, but when you just take a step back, you're like, if we take away the stuff that we layered on to cause us problems, the body knows what to do. 
and we don't even have to pretend like we know why it's doing it or when it's doing it. It's just, yeah, let's just see what happens. Let's just do an experiment. And a lot of times those experiments go well when you give trust back to the body that it knows how to self-organize in a more optimal way when you take away the crap that we've layered on that gives it problems. Indeed. So we talked about the heel, elevated heel. Yep talked about the toe spring mm-hmm. um we talked at the start about the width of a shoe because i think that's mm-hmm. a really like in terms of like the four things that we say are wtff because mm-hmm. i think giving because they can make that mnemonic mean whatever mm-hmm. they want right mm-hmm. and sometimes it's memorable for them so wide thin flat flexible mm-hmm. and i think you know i've tried to think okay well what are the non-negotiables yeah what are your non-negotiables out of, and and is there something you would add to that right yeah. flat uh, wide thin flat and flexible Yeah, Um, I would get a little bit more uh, detailed in the definition of wide because when when shoe companies talk about wide shoes, the public thinks they understand what that means. But unfortunately, what that means is you're getting wider at the ball of the foot. So we're careful at our clinic to say always widest at the tips of the toes. Which makes it really hard to find shoes. It does. It totally does. We try not to use um, the term wide toe box because that's based on the Brannock device. They're going right. to give you the B, C, D, E width at the ball of your foot. That's a good point. Yeah. So that's that. Um, so that the, all four of those are my non-negotiables. Um, maybe not immediately. In other words, if somebody's been in a 12 millimeter heel running shoe, I'm not all of a sudden going to slam them to a flat shoe. Right. So we will sometimes use um, transitional shoes where they you know they're slowly gradually dropping their heel. Um, we, we say flat, wide, and flexible, um, widest at the tips of the toes. So right. we're, we're careful to point that out. We could, you know, we could geek out on all kinds of other things too, like lightweight, I think is important. Yeah. We were just talking about that. Yeah. Especially as you get more and more aware of your body, you become more and more aware of dragging extra weight from mm-hmm. behind your body out in front of your body. Um, we've got the fundamental five in our education, um, and I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but it's similar to what you guys are teaching. So not the, the heel elevation, the toe spring, the tapering of the toe box, um, torsional rigidity, right? You know, so if you've got a shoe and unfortunately this is what podiatry teaches in America and maybe in Canada, I don't know, but I'm sure it's probably the same in Canada. So I was taught way back in the day, three things I was taught torsionally rigid, which for the audience means if you grab the heel counter, the back of the shoe and the toe box of the shoe and try to twist it, <laughs> I was taught that it's not supposed to move at all. I know. I was told that I always remember that. Like we do one of these mobilizations in the seminar. That's a midfoot mobilization to try and improve the torsional movement of the foot, like the rear foot and the forefoot being able to move um, independently. Right. Yeah. And I always laugh because I, I always remember this very impactful talk when I worked at a sports store, I went and um, they had like a product knowledge session for the footwear department. And I was like, I'm going to go check it out. I, I, you know, shoes have always been interesting to me. Um, and the ASIC rep comes in and he's like, we have the best torsional rigidity of anyone on the market. We have this brand new technology. And at the time I was like, oh, this is so cool. I can use these big words. It's amazing. And then looking back, I'm like, we just messed people's feet up with yeah. this. We sold something as a feature benefit that actually <laughs> took away from foot function. And it's it's so crazy. And it persists today. Um, the two other p- features that I was taught to tell people, not only torsional rigidity, I was told them to have a stable heel counter. In other words, the, the back of the shoe, when you squeezed it, it's not supposed to bend at all. And then the, the shoe was only supposed to bend at the ball of the foot. And I, I actually taught this for some years until I read Dr. Rossi and started practicing differently. Then I... I reached out to the author of these recommendations online many times on on podiatry listservs because I wanted to know where the research came from. Right. Where are you getting your information from? Right. Um, And 
not so surprisingly, there wasn't any research. It was well-intentioned ideas, which were wrong. Um, So we tell people we want a shoe that's going to be flexible. A quarter of all the body's joints are in your feet. Um, To your point, why would we want to make that rigid and then later try to do treatments to mobilize the rigidity that created dysfunction. So it's, it really doesn't make sense. And you don't have to be a medical person to see that it, this doesn't make sense. Right, it's just a lack of understanding. Like they don't, they don't get it. Not at all. Not even close. Not yet. Anyway, we'll, we'll reach them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're and, right. And I'm optimistic. Yeah. It's, it is changing, but unfortunately still, when you go in the shoe store, you still hear the clerks bragging about these things Mm -hmm. as, and it's, it's misinformation and it's harmful I agree because it really actually does hurt people. And, but the way they present it is if this is going to cure your problems, a couple of my friends have done some pretty interesting uh, literature reviews on recommendations in footwear. One of them is my friend, Craig Richards from Australia, primary care doctor, had a lot of runners in his practice, chronically injured, like everybody else is. He looked through the literature, found that every year that a runner wears the conventional style of running shoe, depending upon the study you look at, it's anywhere between 40 and 80% of runners are going to get an injury for that year. That's so crazy. It's, it is crazy. But I also lived that early right. on in my running career. So right. you I experienced I it. did. So I, I, I see where it happens to people. Um, but Dr. Richard's study, which, which was published in the Journal of uh, British Sports Medicine, it's titled, Are Your Distance Running Shoe... Uh, is your distance running shoe prescription evidence-based? Hmm. He did a fantastic review. At His conclusion was there's no evidence for any of this. Great. There's no evidence for a stiff heel. There's no evidence for a stable heel canter, only bending at the ball of the foot. There's no evidence. Um, it's, And furthermore, uh, the Journal of the American Podiatric Medical Association had two British gentlemen do a study where they looked at that model of footwear and then they looked at the natural model and their conclusion was the conventional model is a theoretical perspective. Hmm. And I'm okay with theoretical perspectives right. as long as it's presented as such. Right. What I have a problem with is they don't present it as that. They present it as factual mm-hmm. and scientifically correct. And this is where the public spends boatloads of money. They hurt themselves thinking they're doing the right thing. And a lot of people hurt because of wearing those kinds of shoes. And so they don't right. enjoy movement. They don't like running because... And when I put those shoes on just, you know, every once in a while, I understand. It's like you can't move. You can't move properly. And how could you be joyful in your body and be healthy if you can't move properly? And it it really, like, and I've started to tell people, like, the shoes you wear don't just affect your feet. They really don't. Because like you said, if if wearing these shoes makes movement uncomfortable and you want to move less, your your footwear have literally had these... You know, you don't want to be sensationalist, but it really is the reality. If you don't move as much because the shoes you wear are uncomfortable but you don't connect those dots, that's doing way more harm than just to your feet, right? That's harming your movement patterns. And even, you know, I always tell people, humans aren't designed to walk around on ramps all day long. And one thing I like to ask is, the last time you walked down a hill, how did it feel? And a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people that are more in tune with their body are like, yeah, I felt my knees more, or Mm -hmm. I felt my low back more. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Because when you're going down a hill, you know, in order for you to stand upright, you have to make a couple changes in your joints and your Jenga blocks to kind of orient and you become more quad dominant. Your pelvis tends to want to tilt forward more. And you're basically doing that all day if you wear heeled footwear yeah. to a small extent, right? Like people think of high heels as like women's stilettos, but like most running shoes are high heels. They are. We just don't look at it in that perspective. We're like, oh, the cushioning needs to be there. So that's just normal. But it is really this weird thing. And, you know, for the, wide thin flat flexible 
I always tell people, put the shoe beside your bare foot on the ground and compare the shapes. Mm -hmm. And the more incongruent those shapes are, the less likely you should be buying that shoe. Yes. And for the flexibility, you know, we say flexibility and I just give people two easy tests. Take the shoe and like you said, torsionally, like twist it along its length axis. Can mm -hmm. you twist it? How mm -hmm. much resistance is there? Mm -hmm. And then can you crumple it up? Yep. And if you can't do those two, you know, I always tell people, if you know what to look for in shoes, it's way more powerful than being told what shoe to buy. And if they go through those check boxes and know every time I buy a shoe, I should be trying to check more of those boxes mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. uh, the funny thing is eventually, what, if they buy in just just enough to try a pair of that footwear, mm -hmm. <laughs> they kind of come back to you and they're like happy and pissed at the same time. So they're like, I love it because my feet don't hurt and my body feels better, this is all great. I hate you because all my other shoes don't fit anymore yeah. and I gotta buy all new friggin' shoes. We hear it every day, literally hear it every day. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's and we explain to people that this is what's going to happen preemptively, you know, um, and we have all kinds of jokes going on around the clinic because people have huge investments in shoes they won't <laughs> even wear. In fact, a lot of my female runners will still keep a high heeled shoe or two, but they won't wear it. They'll literally tell me they put it on the shelf and just admire it. You know, That's like Jeff, he's got this big footwear collection and he's like, I'm gonna make art with it because that's really what it is. They're beautiful, they're cool, they were a part of my identity as I was growing up, but now I'm gonna take all these basketball shoes that aren't, you know, they're, they're pieces of art, they're not clothing. Right. And I think people differentiate. I like to use the word clothing um, to apply to shoes now mm -hmm. because it gives people a different perspective it's like clothing is something humans wear on top of their bodies to protect their bodies from the environment yep. whether that's temperature or um you know abrasiveness or whatever it is and if you think of footwear like clothing and sometimes i give the analogy if you wore jeans that were so tight that you couldn't bend your knees so you walked around like you had two peg legs would you look at that person like that was a normal person? You'd be like, that. what is that person doing? Like, why are they wearing those jeans? It's messing their body up. We do that with footwear and we just, it's snuck in there so sneakily over time that we just think that that's the norm. Yeah. And it's just, you know, there's only so much time you can spend talking about footwear, but at the same time, that is the most important element because everyone wears shoes. You bet. And so if you just try and take a, you know, the whole, like we talked about, Tony Robbins explains things in five different ways, and one of those ways reaches most people. Um, and if you explain the, the footwear stuff in a way that's logical, intuitive, and people are like, okay, I, I get it enough to, to feel compelled to experiment with it, because that's really all you want to do, right, is give them enough to stimulate some level of change so that they can then prove to themselves what the truth is yeah. through their experience, by feeling, by literally removing whatever's causing them pain. Um, I always find one of the most shocking things. I remember I heard you um, talking about this on a podcast before is like people will go in and let's talk about bunions. Mm. People will go in and get a bunionectomy, mm -hmm. which is oh, maybe I'll let you explain a bunionectomy because they'll do it way better than me. But they're never the correct the dysfunction created by footwear. Mm -hmm. And they're never told that footwear created the problem. Right. That I think is the craziest thing. It is the craziest thing. So maybe for someone, if someone comes to you and is like, I don't even know what a bunion is, but mm -hmm. I got this weird thing going on on my foot and mm -hmm. it's a bunion. How would you explain it to them in terms of what it is, mm -hmm. what the mechanism is, mm -hmm. and and maybe talk a bit about how we currently treat them, but how you treat them now? Because yeah. I think you know, that's probably part of what led you to create something, a product that solves the problem, which is correctos. So let's start by talking about bunions and then let's talk about the journey with correctos too because i think that's a very it's one of these people use like this weird form of thinking where it's like well of course you're gonna say that because you sell it but it's like actually i realized it and then i created something that wasn't out there to solve the problem and it's like this really circular thinking that i think we need to 
you know, make everything obvious to people to say like, this is the order that it happened in and this mm. is why. Yeah. So let's talk about bunions and then we'll get into that. You bet. Um, I actually had a bunion um, myself and in my residency, I had a bunion. Uh, I also had a hammer toe. So collectively in podiatry, we call that an overlapping toe, right. which means that your second toe sits on top of your bunion. Huh. And um, I bought my very first pair of running shoes at Forzani's in Calgary. Nike Pegasus, I bought a size nine. And um, I don't remember if I was measured on the brand device or I just told the guy to get me a nine. Right. And I promptly began running and I promptly got injured. Well, I wear a 12 now. Wow. Um, yeah, as my feet have gotten healthy and unraveled. But the point is, um, I had a bunion myself and I was trained to surgically treat bunions. So during my residency, about 10 times a week, we're opening up somebody's foot. Uh, basically for the audience, a bunion is a progressive dislocation of the big toe joint caused by footwear nearly 100% of the time. And I'll share with the audience a couple ways of differentiating this in their own lives. But I had the bunion myself and the bunionectomy literally is opening up the foot, taking a surgical saw and cutting a third of the head of the metatarsal completely off, cutting through the head of the metatarsal in a chevron shape so you can take the joint and move it closer to the second toe joint. Screws get placed in there. Um, patient has to be off their foot for quite a while. But what really, what really did not appeal to me about that operation in terms of my own body and why I chose a different path was we literally cut a muscle off of the first metatarsal in the big toe joint. Wow. It's called the adductor hallucis. It's, it's the muscle to the inside of the big toe. So 10 times a week, we're taking our scalpel and we're doing this, this um, procedure that we're taught and we're cutting this muscle off the bone because that muscle is too tight. Right. Because the footwear gave it the advantage and the footwear over lengthened the muscle to the inside of the big toe, the abductor hallucis. The body adapted to use what was available to it because of the position we put the foot in from the footwear. And as you know, it always will. And that goes right. for the Achilles, that goes for the front of the calf, and it also goes for the toe muscles. Hmm. So we're cutting these toe muscles off the bone, we're cutting into the bone, and um, there's a lot of pain associated with it, there's a lot of swelling, um, people can't get in their footwear for a long time, but more importantly, it's not the most appropriate way to treat a bunion. Right. Um, so maybe I'll share a quick story and then I'll get into some of the some of the details. There's a community in Massachusetts called Framingham, I think, where they've been doing what's called the Framingham study. They've studied 85,000 people for, I want to say, three decades. Wow, that's a massive study. Yeah, it's a big study. So they've been studying who gets heart disease, who gets diabetes, who gets cancer. They looked recently at who gets limb length inequalities. A group of Harvard researchers looked at the data, and out of that 85,000 people, 2,700 of them had bunions of what they call digital deformities, so some kind of a crooked toe. Mm -hmm. And so what the researchers from Harvard asked those 2,700 people to do is go back in their family tree and ask who in the family has the bunion and the digital deformity. And not so surprisingly, a lot of them did. Right. And this is why people get misled to believe that this runs in their family. So they it does run in their family. It does, but it's not the bunion. It's not the progressive dislocation. Two things do run in their family. Right. Um, but we have to be really clear about that. Otherwise, people will misunderstand and think it's the bunion that runs in their family. Right. Um, so they published in Journal of um, Arthritis Care and Research. And we wrote a rebuttal and we contacted them and we asked them to apply a simple test. And we told them, and this is the nature of research, things need to be challenged and tested and um, rethought through. And if new information comes along or a new test, we need to change our hypothesis. Right. So I shared with the researchers that I have a test that you can employ on all 2,700 of these people and 100% of them, this isn't always, 
uh, or at least a 99% probably. Close to 100% of those people, when you apply the tests that we'll talk about next, will see with their own eyes why they have a bunion. Um, for the audience, we're not born with bunions usually. I've seen one. Right. And there's only one that I know of in the medical literature that's been reported. So across the globe, especially in America, we, we take a footprint of the baby when, at birth. And I show my daughter's footprints to the new patient. And I tell them, you were born like this too. Right. At first, when they see the footprint, they think I'm just a proud dad. But I'm trying to point out natural anatomy. And it's, it's one of the rare opportunities an American or a Canadian will actually see natural anatomy unless they travel abroad. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem with a lot of Americans. They don't travel abroad. They, we look at each other's feet and they are deformed by the shoe. And we're like, oh, that's what a normal foot looks like. It is what a normal foot likes, looks like, but not a natural foot. Based on your normal. Of right. Because you, you're right. When I went to Bangkok to do a seminar, everyone's feet there, they were insane. They had their feet were almost had the like some of them have the dexterity of hands where they could move individual toes. They were splayed out and they look like they look like hobbit feet, but they were healthy, functional, robust, strong feet that no one there had problems with their feet. Dr. Rossi profiled several cultures like that in Africa and South America who, because of the nature of their footwear, they still have healthy feet. And that's really the, the, a massive take-home point, really. It, like right. we're saying, it is a shoe. Um, but I think we fail to study natural far too often, right? Like we, oh, for we sure. have no baseline to compare it to. If all you're seeing, and, and it helps to kind of understand how the medical community has gotten to this point where we think the body breaks down, because if that's all you see, mm -hmm. that is normal. Mm -hmm. Right, and it is normal, but we we forget to contrast that to natural, which is well in this non-zoo environment that we're all stuck in. What do humans look like when they're not in that environment? And we just fail. I think we just fail to examine what are the true norms of like people that are not exposed to all these cultural things like chairs or footwear or shitty food. It's like that's really should be our true barometer. But I think if you fail to measure that end of the continuum, then you just live in this bubble that you try and come up with solutions as best you can. So I think that's so powerful that Rossi did that. And there was a guy that did that in dental as well, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Is it Weston or? Weston Price. Weston Price. Yeah. That was another mind-blowing experience. I don't want to tangent off on that unless you want to, but I read a book he wrote <laughs> called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It's the exact same thing. It like is. Sugar is, is shoes. It is. It <laughs> totally is. And so I go to my dentist and he's telling me to brush and floss and he wants to clean my teeth. And I asked him one day, what do you think of Weston Price after I read his book? And he, like most podiatrists, when I ask him about Rossi, who, who is that guy? I never, <laughs> seriously, I never yeah. heard of the guy, but it's a perfect parallel, literally. Um, so the tests that I would encourage your audience to employ and the test we asked our Harvard research to look at we call it the sock liner test or the insole test where if you remove what comes out of most athletic shoes that little piece of foam mm -hmm. we have we have all of our patients stand on that in the clinic or if they're wearing orthotics we have them stand on the orthotic which will be roughly shaped like the shoe right like the liner and in our clinic as we've been photographing this 90 percent of them actually go beyond that so we told the Harvard researchers, if you take your 2,700 people, do the sock liner test, you're going to see that probably 99%, if not 100% of them are going to fail the sock liner test, meaning their, their bunion is going to go beyond that. Right. The shoe is going to be too narrow for their foot. So the two features that I do believe are genetic, as I've seen it for 25 years, are a foot that is wider than the footwear that that patient has worn their whole lives. Right. That is hereditary a wide foot. A bunion is not hereditary. Exactly. A bunion is a, a environmental. Yeah, it really is. Um, the other thing I see impacting that occasionally is soft tissue flexibility. 
Hmm. Some, t- some people can put on a pointed shoe and because of the robustness of their soft tissue, they won't develop a bunion as quickly as somebody who's really hyperflexible. Right. You know, they'll, their body will take on that uh, new bad memory pretty quickly. So we did a three-part series. Um, happy if you could link to that if you wanted to. Yeah, but, I definitely will. But basically, we, um, we pointed out the baby footprint. We asked them to do this test. We showed the test. But the real conclusion that we hoped that they would arrive at was based upon we took a um we took a picture of a lady in thailand who has the rings on her neck Mm -hmm. and we we told the harvard researchers that if we use your method to come to our conclusion we would say that all the ladies in thailand hereditarily have a long neck because all their necks are long Right. Or if we went to Africa and we looked at these tribes that bandaged the little baby skulls, they have a long skull. All those, ki- all those people in that tribe have a long skull. It's familial. Yeah. Because everyone in that family has a long skull. Everybody looks that way. You know, obviously the prudent person realizes there's an external deforming force, but this is where I can't seem to see very many podiatrists, at least in America, making that natural conclusion they will oftentimes say well yeah a bunion might exacerbate i had a guy recently say a bunion excites a bunion is excited by footwear but not caused (laughs) um no a bunion is caused bunions are never exciting okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so um essentially bunions are generally reducible if a person can choose shoes that are widest at the ends of the toes right and this is where you know if you don't do that you're never going to reverse your bunion so in keeping with our early conclusion, it goes back to the footwear always. If exactly. you want to have a natural cure for any of these things, you really have to understand the footwear first because if you don't, you will fail. Um, and a lot of people do. A lot of people try to do some of this stuff and keep wearing their pointed shoes and wonder why their bunion's not reversing. I know. Um, I get that all the time. They're like, oh, I'm using my toe spreaders. I, I just don't know. It's not going away. I'm like, well, did you change your shoes? Did you take the rock out of your shoe? Totally. And they're like, well, I changed some. This yeah. is what everyone says. I changed some. Mm. It's like, well, which ones do you spend the most time in? Did you change those? Because those are the ones that matter the most. You and they're like, well, not my work shoes. Yeah. It's like, that's, those, are the, those are the shoes you spend the most time in. And it's just, but I, I think I've taken, what I used to find ridiculous and almost get frustrated, be like, how the hell is this person not seeing this? This is so blatantly mm. obvious. Like your shoe, your foot is not like a triangle. If you wear shoes that literally look like triangles, stilettos look like triangles, your foot turns into a triangle, which is AKA bunion. Yep. And, but now my approach is like, these people just don't know. They're not being told that, which is, I think, my biggest source of, source of empathy is they've had, they've never actually had this come into their awareness. Yeah. And if you're not aware, you cannot, like, you can't take responsibility for the health of your feet if no one's given you the ability to respond to that circumstance by educating you. Right, like responsibility is response able, able to respond. Well, if you don't understand what the problem is, you're not able to respond. Right, and so like now my approach is instead of frustration and being like, what the heck is going on? How's this person so blind? It's like, wow, this person's never been told this. This is a beautiful opportunity to educate them, and and you know every person you talk to is basically an experiment to see how well can I articulate this in a way that resonates with this human, not just like a person that has messed up feet, but this person the. You know, the, is it a woman that loves shoes? Because that's going to be a different conversation than just some guy that comes in and has bunions from dress shoes. And you're just like, dude, your shoes aren't shaped like your feet. Let's get you in better shoes. Here are some options. Versus that lady, it's like, number one, you're a male. She's a female. We automatically have different perspectives on footwear. And there's a lot of things that, you know, there's, there's a disconnect there. But I, I really think, as you probably have, is you learn ways to to articulate this to the type of person you're speaking with 
and ways to kind of connect with them where they trust what you're saying because you're making it simple. You're not coming at it as like this patronizing thing. It's just like, I'm on your team. I'm telling you this because I, I, I want you to understand how to get yourself better. And when they get that vibe, then they're like, what else can you tell me? Mm -hmm. I want to learn as much as I can because you turn from the person telling someone what to do to the person that's helping them discover what they need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is such a like different perspective from the way I was taught in physio school, mm -hmm. right? You're in physio school. You're like, people break down after 40 people start to break down. You're there to fix them. And it's like, okay, well, I guess that's the way it's supposed to be done. These, mm -hmm. I pay a lot of money to go to school. These are really smart people. I guess that's just the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And then you learn that that's not the truth. And you're like, what the heck happened back there? Yes. Like, why are we so behind? And that, you know what, at some point that was probably the best information we had. And, and that's fine because I've done things in the past that I'm like, I can't believe I did that stuff. But then you look back, you're like, that was the best I knew how to do. And I was trying to help someone with the information I had. And you know that Maya Angelou quote where she's like, once you know better, you do better. Mm. And I think our reluctance to do better or to even want to look into how to do better, right? That quote where it's like, if your salary depends on you not learning how to do things better, there's, there's, a, systematic, there's a systemic problem in the game. And we talked about, you know, changing the rules of the game and, it's tricky, but at its core, it's, it is simple. Yeah. And I think reaching the people, if we can educate the public, and then when they go see a professional and that professional says, you know, the typical stuff, when the patient says, well, what do you think about the shoes I wear? And they're the ones basically quizzing to determine, does this person even know, you know, like the basic stuff that I now know? Uh, I think that's powerful because you can get yeah. change from the bottom up. You bet. Um, yeah. So what, what were we talking? Oh yeah. Bunions. So yeah. So bunionectomy is essentially shaving off a part of your foot to mm -hmm. surgically correct, to yeah. basically try and make your foot better at squeezing into non-human shoes. Precisely what it is. It's an elective procedure. Unfortunately, it does hurt because obviously the shoe is rubbing on the big toe joint, which is partially dislocated. Right. So um, it hurts because a major nerve runs over that area. And there's usually two kinds of bunion pain. The typical pain that people feel is on the bump of the bunion. Right. And by the way, the bump is not a calcium deposit, not a growth of bone, not a bone spur. It's, it's that the toe is not on the head of the metatarsal anymore. Right. So the joint literally is 50% dislocated in some of these people. I think I only learned this probably about six months ago, listening to you, a podcast I had listened to before, but I love listening to podcasts that I listened to before with a new brain, because mm. then you tune into new stuff. And when mm. you said that, I rewound it and I listened to it again. I'm like, oh my God, I never tuned into this, but that's not ectopic bone formation or a result of friction that's part of our foot yes it is that's yes so it is crazy our favorite thing to do is actually take an x-ray of a person inside of their shoe right and this is not just the stiletto female shoe this is the man's dress shoe too in fact i gave a talk to the podiatry sports group about four years ago and i, t I said to the guys our audience is mostly guys i said do you guys know that you're holding your toe in a partially dislocated position right um, which is really fascinating that the experts are actually deform deforming their own body. Um, well, it was like that foot biomechanics symposium that I talked about. Uh, yeah, it's just like, but it's just same thing. It's lack of awareness. It's, yeah. it's we we reduce things to such simple terms that we lose. You know, if you have tunnel vision to look at one thing really specifically and try and take a really because that's what you know research is isolating variables, trying to take a multivariate thing, reduce the variables so you can study one specific variable. But if by doing that, that shapes your worldview of how things actually exist, like in its vacuum that you're studying them in, you miss out on the big picture of like, oh, mm -hmm. oh, okay. It's the really, it's the obvious stuff that we're missing that's doing the most damage. And we're trying to study the end result of that damage. 
at the expense of not even knowing what the big picture is. Yes. And it's like, how do we get people to just like, you know, like I visualize it sometimes where, you know, microscopes, you turn the thing and there's different levels. It's like people are looking at the craziest one. And all I want to do is just go in on the microscope and twist it. And then they'll be like, whoa, oh, shit. Okay, that stuff's there. The big picture. Yeah. 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 And it's like, how do we get education institutions to start to just change their mic- microscope lens for a part of their course? I'm not saying because you're not going to have like these, you're not going to turn the Titanic around on a dime. Yeah. But if you can just get listening ears, because these people are so smart, they get into these programs. It's just trying to, that's a tough egg to crack. Because right? there's so much opposite side information. There's actually resistance to the really simple stuff, which mm-hmm. is, that's the part that I, I get really frustrated with. It's not the lack of information. It's purposely going against mm-hmm. the simple stuff that should be so common sense and intuitive right. that I just get confused by. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So so you had a bunion and mm-hmm. then... And so you had a choice where it was like, okay, I either correct it surgically, which is literally what you were trained to do. Yep. Um, and then what path did you choose and how did that go? Yeah. So at one particular surgery, as we cut that muscle off the bone, I asked myself, um, what if there is a slow pr- approach to this? It's a muscle imbalance caused by footwear, partial right. dislocation of the joint. The inner muscle gets too tight. The outer muscle gets too long. It can't function. And so I actually um, was talking to one of my physio buddies, and in the States we call them physical therapists as opposed to physios. Right. And um, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm curious about these bunionectomies. I'm wondering, can we take that adductor, can we rehab it? Can we like work on the trigger point? Can we stretch it? Um, and so he and I went, we were seeing some patients in a nursing home, and he took me to one of his patients. Who I think she broke her hip, and she laid on her bed for weeks. Hmm. And even her upper body started losing mobility. And he methodically warmed her and put her through ranges of motion and got a lot of her mobility back. She was an old lady. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I have not seen any approach to any foot abnormality that's a, that's a therapy approach. Right. Although now I've discovered there are people out there, therapists have been talking about this for a long time. Right. And it's just still not mainstream like we talked about. But essentially, I, I didn't want to have the operation because even though um, the surgeon's doing their best and um, the training is good, it doesn't always go well. And as a runner and someone who is addicted to movement, I didn't want to be the the few people that never move properly after. And sometimes it's not a few. Sometimes there's lots of people that have surgical complications. Right. But essentially, I understood why I had it from reading Dr. Rossi, I understood the footwear was a problem. I realized my scalpel and saw were not permanently fixing anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I started using these single silicone spacers that you can see in the drugstore, putting between my big toe and second toe, wearing bigger shoes. The problem at that time is there were no shoes that correlated to what Dr. Rossi said was natural, other than Birkenstock and Crocs. And neither one of those were perfect for running, although right. we did a lot of running in Crocs. Um, I started noticing that just with the single splint over the course of many months, when I would take it off, my big toe was a little further out from under my second toe. Interesting. I thought so too. And so I kept at it. And then I thought, well, I can't see my fifth toe because it's all curled in under my fourth toe like most people's are in industrialized societies. And again, we think that's normal. Yeah. Um, so I started putting a splint there. And over months of time, I started noticing, wow, I can see the toenail on top of my fifth toe, which I hadn't in years. Of course, I'm also increasing my size and my footwear at this time. Right. Um, then I started putting silicone spacers in between all of my toes. And then I had a huge aha moment because I connected with my body in a way that I never had. 
So it was at that point, it was no longer just about reversing my bunion. I was like, wait, my knees feel better. All of a sudden I'm in tune with my hips and my core and my pelvis in a way I'd never been. Because hmm. I just, I don't think I was getting information. I wasn't body aware. Right. So I'm starting to feel these things and I'm starting to see these things. And I start to talk to the patient population and they're intrigued by this. And they're like, wow, this is pretty cool. I want to do this too. Where do I go get my running shoes? And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we started chopping up shoes and cutting off heels and, and running in Crocs, um, which were, were humbling days because to hold this powerful, truthful, natural information and not be able to properly implement it was so frustrating. So you experimented. We did. I love that. We did. Because uh, you're like, there's no, there's nothing, there's no solution to this problem. I'm going to improvise and see what I can come up with. You bet. Fortunately, nowadays, there's plenty of uh, companies in the marketplace right. that understand this and it's getting better all the time. Um, but the problem was as an athlete, as soon as I started perspiring, those silicone things would like squish Slipping out. Everywhere. They would. And I was really frustrated by that. And so I was out on a mountain bike ride with a buddy of mine who's a designer. And I said, can we put all these things together? He's like, let me see what I can do. We mocked up some drawings. We mocked up some prototypes and we made a thousand mistakes until we finally came to one that was comfortable. That was actually anatomically correct. Right. Um, and that was probably in 2003. And it was a phenomenal transformation for a lot of people, myself included. If you look at my feet now, um, I should have taken pictures of my feet back then. And maybe I, I might have some somewhere of me walking on a beach or something. I hope um, it's a profound, phenomenal transformation. My feet yeah. look like baby's feet now um, or close to it. Um, so essentially, we got the correct toes and I made... Well, I, I shouldn't call it a mistake, but I thought my target audience was the podiatric community. Mm -hmm. And I sent free samples out. We weren't very sophisticated at that time. We had a little sandwich bag and it typed up, you know, go slow. Your shoes have to be widest at the tips of the toes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but um, only a couple of podiatrists really expressed any interest. Most of them were like, oh, it doesn't fit my shoes. It's uncomfortable. Or no, my patients aren't going to wear that. Or they don't yeah, like it. It doesn't fit in my shoes. Yeah, you, you got shoes that aren't wide enough for your foot. That's when I realized, really, the problem is we need to educate people. Right. You know? um, but the gratifying feature for us was people kept coming back. I feel better. My toes are straighter. My arch is stronger. Other parts of my body feel better. How can you go back on that right you know so we've basically just been trying to perfect our craft over that time um so we've got sizes for everybody we're making a pediatric size because believe it or not we see little kids that have right. some crooked toes early in life because mm -hmm. this deforming process starts at age two or three for most people baby shoes are shaped like baby feet right you know my own baby shoes i have them they're widest at the tips of the toes but then I see family pictures of me at age three and so forth. I'm already in little kids' tapered toe boxes, right. probably wearing them too small. So we just have to make baby-shaped shoes for adults that look good. Every, everybody <laughs> needs that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, true. So those are that is what became correct toes. That's what became correct toes, yeah. Um, we're, let's see, where are we, 2019? That's 16 years ago. Hard to believe it's Wow, that is, I didn't think, because uh, I, instead of looking into when they first came out, I just trying to guess i was like i wonder how long you've been at this and i thought it was like maybe 10 years but that's mm. crazy that it was yeah. that long ago it's been probably 10 years where wow. we've actually developed a bit of a brand presence not through podiatry i um i actually started talking to physios about this and chiropractors and mm -hmm. um, body workers and for them there's no economic incentive to see it differently and natural anatomy and alignment is in keeping with their curriculum right and so they're like, well, duh, this totally makes perfect sense. And yeah, we're, 
course we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, we've had a few in the podiatric community start to practice this way or at least offer it. Amazing. Yeah, it is rather amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, but most of our progress early on was not within podiatry. But now we've got partners all over the world in um, non-podiatric professions who use the product regularly with good success. One of the most gratifying things is the testimonials. We mm-hmm. don't even meet these people oftentimes. They'll they'll read the website, they'll pick up the product, they'll get proper footwear, they'll implement it strategically and slowly and wisely, and they'll see the results. Then they'll take a picture. Um, and so we post these in our newsletters, we post these on the website, and oh my gosh, talk about gratifying results. Right. Take a person who has been in pain, who's told that it runs in their family, need an operation, give them something simple, inexpensive, that's natural and effective, and like you said, empower them to take care of themselves. And my dream come true for those people, and it happens frequently, is I see them one, maybe two times. The second time is usually troubleshooting a couple simple elements, and then I probably won't see them for many years, if ever again. Because now they know, now they've got the education. Now they can be- that's the job well done. You bet. They can be their own best advocate. And, but the cool thing too, is it does have a trickle down effect they go talk to their family members who invariably might have a similar problem. And next thing you know, it, we're taking care of their family members and friends and they're telling everybody else. And so it's, it's really, really cool. And it's, it's super fun to help people in that way. Yeah. Not doing any permanent harm, not breaking the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's important too. I think a lot of people, you know, when something is cost prohibitive, it's just an extra obstacle. And, you know, health is actually less is more when Mm -hmm. it comes to health. If you believe that the body's good at what it's doing, like, why do we, why is fasting one of the most underrated ways of healing the body? Um, It's because we don't talk about it because it's not profitable to not eat, right? And it's like one of these weird things. And back to the, you know, running in the family thing. And one one of my favorite things to say now is when someone says, yeah, I got bunions, they run, they, they run in my family. And I said, what if I told you that really healthy pain for your feet could run in your family? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? This mm-hmm. is like, because I think the fallacy, the, the base core of the fallacy is running, running, runs in my family becomes synonymous with is embedded in my genetic code. Right. When it's like, you know, all you have to do is ask, well, do, does, do your family wear the same type of footwear? Mm-hmm. Do they do the same type of behaviors? Right. What if it's the environmental aspect of what your family's done? Because that's pretty much what everyone does is really what runs in your family. And then the side effect of that is what you see. You know, I, I think if you differentiate genetic from familial, then people are like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. Because it, I, I just think that's like, people just associate the two and that's where the assumption comes from. Because I get it when people say that, where they're like, it's genetic. It's like, wait a minute, why do you say that? Well, my sister has it, my mom has it. It's like, okay, what if I said it was because of these kinds of shoes and they probably wore those shoes too. They're like, ah, mm-hmm. and you see, once you see the light bulb go off, like that light bulb going off moment is like one of my favorite moments. Cause Same. it's like something reached that person. Yeah. Something challenged their story in a way that they were open-minded to accepting. And sometimes it's the first time they've ever been told that, which is still shocking, but I, I get it. Yeah. Um, That's truly my favorite thing to show them too. The, the sock liner test or the insole test, yeah. because most people, stand on the Brannock device, they get their number in their letter and they put their foot in their shoe and they go by feel. Mm-hmm. They don't look. If they look, they'll see that they are truly deforming themselves. Um, many times I'll put the sock liner or the insole under their foot and I'll, I'll have them stand up and I'll have them stand on. I won't say anything and I'll just pause and wait and see what their observation is and they'll right. be like, they'll have that aha moment and invariably they'll go, oh, it's narrower than my foot, you know? 
which is fascinating because so many of these people come in and they say, well, I've got a wide foot. I've had a hard time finding shoes my whole life and all the shoes hurt. And I'm like, yes. And you're about to see why, you know, right. you don't have, you don't have, um, problem feet. You have narrow shoes. Yeah. Problem shoes. Not yeah. Problem feet. Yeah. And that empowers people yeah. when they've been blaming it on themselves. Oh, exactly. I got wide feet. I've got, this is a problem with me. No, it's a problem with the industry. 90% of the shoe selling businesses don't sell your size. Right. And don't beyond, sell human shoes. <laughs> right. And beyond that, they don't sell shoes that are naturally shaped in your size. So it's a right. double edged sword, quite frankly, which is why really we shouldn't we shouldn't even base any of our measurement of our footwear based on the current system. Yep. Sock line. We've got a video on that. If your audience wants to look at that, it's super simple. It's just correctos.com. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Or they can go to YouTube and just plug in sock liner test or, or in, insole test. Yeah, I recommend anyone that's got an issue going on at their foot especially the big toe do that and do your own experiment don't believe us just be open-minded to checking it out and you'll prove it to yourself yeah. and i think this whole path of going down you know we we've basically made the commitment that we want to do something in the world of footwear at the start of 2021 uh you know we talked about this ideally we partner up with a company that's already got infrastructure in place and help them do you know create something that on all the pillars of it's made uh, well, it's made with a mindset of quality, which means that the shoes will be a bit more expensive. But you know, I I love the saying that I, I read somewhere: poor people can't afford to buy crappy clothing. And that really, uh, I was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But then I thought about, it, I was like, that's right, because if you wear through your shirt every three months, it's it very expensive to buy shirts. Mm -hmm. But if you buy one shirt and you take care of it and it lasts forever, that's a pretty cheap shirt if you amortize the value. And mm -hmm. that, you know, I think Patagonia is a really cool company that took that approach where it's like. It's better to make something better, you know, if it's twice the price, but it lasts 10 times as long, that's a really good trade-off. You bet. Um, you know, and all those pillars, like made well, made ethically, with materials sourced ethically, and, and be transparent with your practices, made functionally, right? And this whole thing, like uh, we proposed it the other day, talking about universal footwear sizing, about creating, creating a new standard that's intuitive and simple for how we size footwear and trying to get some of the bigger players to align with this. And, and it has to be almost, it's like a, an experiment to see, can we get the consumer base to demand better from companies, yeah. right? Instead of waiting for the company to say, oh, well, you know, because they're not going to change, right? The, and, and the idea that we have European, UK, US, US men's, juniors, it's so confusing. Mm -hmm. And then not to mention each manufacturer has their own way of building that size where a nine in Nike and a nine in Adidas fit differently. It's like, duh, obviously it's hard to find shoes. So creating this like kind of universal standard where it's based on number one, the length, the appropriate length of where we should be measuring the length of the foot and also the width mm -hmm. and start to build some accountability where we can literally, you know, you create this universal footwear sizing scale and then you take different shoes that are available and say, this is the size that they claim to be. And then you actually take the measurements and you say, according to UFS, you know what, this is supposed to be a wider version, but if we actually measure the width, this is what the width is. Mm -hmm. And even like, yeah, and, and just creating a new standard where we build, we make shoes that are shaped like feet. So the widest part is the tip of the toes. Like people, are, people think that looks weird, but that is like, okay, then you think feet look weird. Like mm -hmm. helmets are shaped like, like spheres because your skull is a sphere. If you wore a helmet that was shaped like a triangle, people would be like, what is that dude's deal? <laughs> right? So let's wear clothing that's shaped like a body. So creating a new standard there where we make shoes that are shaped like feet instead of tapering into a point. Um, I remember someone posted a graphic once where it's like, they said, do footwear companies think this is what our foot looks like? And it was like the longest toes in the middle looked like an alien foot. I, oh, love that, I found that 
great visual. But standardizing the sizing amongst like universally. If you're a human, this is a really simple, intuitive sizing system that you can use to determine. If you have a pencil and a ruler, you can determine your size. Um, And then really just aligning with companies that want to do better, that see the potential. Like, you know, the big problem in footwear is actually really the biggest opportunity in footwear because the company that really essentially doesn't compromise and says, this is the best way of doing it. We're going to do it this way. It's going to be hard at the start, but it's actually from a commerce standpoint and business standpoint, it's a really smart move. Mm -hmm. The short term investment of changing how you do things is going to pay massive dividends because it's really, you know, the public is only becoming better and better informed. And as they do, they start to learn. It's hard to find this footwear, but I have, I prioritize my footwear now. And so, you know, we talked about this, you know, whatever we end up calling it, this coalition of people that understand feet and foot health and footwear um, and come together like, like yourself, like us, you know, Gate Happens, Barefoot Podiatrist, The Urban Barefoot, Jeff, all these people that are in this space come together and create a force for helping industries change. Not being someone, it's not the foot health people versus the footwear people, it's we need to we need to mesh forces and yes. really sort of have conversations to say, well, this is what the standard should be based on making footwear, and here are some strategies to help get you there without you know d- having to start from scratch. Right. So I look forward to reaching out to you said Lucas from Ahinsa, yeah, yeah, and just different small companies that have the mindset of being able to scale and have a quality mindset. You know, they make the uh, the vegan versions, which I think are important for uh, is an important option to have. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see what we end up doing in terms of being able to influence and, and help. It's not about influencing. It's just about like helping and providing the information to these companies to do better now that they know better. Yes. And taking the perspective that I think a lot of these companies just don't know better. Now, if they don't want to know better because it's convenient to continue having the profits, then, you know, they just get excluded and eventually mm-hmm. they get left behind. Right? Like, so. Why are all yeah. the big car manufacturers making electric cars now? Well, because Tesla did it and showed that this is actually what people want and this is actually way better. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, you're going to be left in the dust. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you know, I'm optimistic that that paradigm shift will happen. Mm-hmm. I'm I too. How about you? Yeah, I'm too. Yeah. And there are a lot of good companies. Like you're wearing Ultras. Yeah. Uh, Jeff was wearing Vivos. Um, I was wearing these boots that are made in Canada that are super supple. For, I think they're called Laurentian King. And, you know, it was, it's cool to see, compare notes with other people that are, you know, I call it foot woke where they know what's up with feet. You're like, oh, those are cool. I've never actually, because I, I haven't really worn ultras and I, mm-hmm. I want to kind of try them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what options we could get out there. So anyway, Ray, like, is there anything else that you wanted to chat about? Not that I can think of. I think we covered the salient pieces. Yeah, and we've yeah. got to leave some stuff for next time too. You bet. Um, anyway, thank you for coming out and spending the weekend here. Oh, how'd you like the cold? What did you think of? Let's just talk about, so this weekend, we basically went to a cottage on the St. Lawrence Seaway, um, played a lot of board games. Jeff crushed us in Scrabble. He's like the, the Scrabble wizard. I don't know. <laughs> we even tried to team up on him and it wasn't, it wasn't working. We'll get him next time. Yeah. Uh, played some backgammon and just had some bean time. Which yep. is fun. That was awesome. Dude, you were crushing it on the oh, beam. Man. I was shocked. It's, you're a nimble dude. Thank you. That was so much fun, man. <laughs> you're a brilliant dude for creating those. Serious. Well, just, it's literally just a tube. And it's just I just like it because it's fun and playful. But, um, but the cold. So we went in. It's snowing right now in Canada. It's probably like plus three degrees Celsius. We went in the water. It was probably like four or five degrees Celsius. Um, yeah, we walked in. And we literally spent two minutes in there. And I was... I had full expectations that 
I was like, if Ray goes in all the way to his neck and then gets out, like that is that is impressive. And you stayed in for the whole two minutes. It was pure suffering and pure bliss. <laughs> it really was. But if I hadn't had you guys there, I wouldn't have. Right. You and were, likewise. You were encouraging me and you were giving me some prompts, some things that were helpful. And um, I mean, obviously believe in the benefits of it. It's just right. getting through it. But I'm so grateful we did that. And yeah, it was I, fun. I look forward to more opportunities. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And we did some of the breath work with Jeff too. Mm, that's awesome. Ray held his breath for like over three minutes. And it was, that was, I thought you had like, I thought you had breathed out and I just didn't pay attention. Then mm. I, Je, me and Jeff both stop, we breathe out and we look at each other and we were like basically having a conversation without saying anything like, is Ray still going? And then we looked over and we're like, I guess so. And then like 45 seconds later, you let it out. I was like, do you know you just held your breath for like three minutes, maybe three and a half minutes? That was incredible. You guys put me in a different world, man. The way the breathing, it, it's something happened. I don't know. You know, it just it's so different. Yep. And it's so it's like, it's just, it gives you a little snack for this path of self-discovery to be like, oh, I'm going to try that again. Because mm -hmm. I didn't know that I was anywhere near able to do that. I had no idea. And yeah. like breath is like, it's always fun to find realms that are outside of your bubble of, mm -hmm. you know. Because I think when you're really obsessed and, and love something, it's you want to learn more about it. But then when you step out and you're like, so like something like breath or cold exposure, which is still very related to the physical and mental health realm, um, but is like this new untapped world that you have the chance to discover. Um, it's kind of cool. So I loved it. Thank you for coming out here, man. Thank you for doing the podcast and taking the time. And then if people want to reach you, uh, so you've got Correctos. Is it Correctos.com? It is. Perfect. And, yeah, we've got a clinical website. Uh, uh, nwfootankle.com which Perfect. stands for northwestfootandankle.com um, we're on we're on all the platforms you know Amazing. Facebook Instagram so forth we've got a blog we've got a newsletter um, cool you guys have tons of articles because you guys have purchased rights to a lot of very cool some of Rossi's stuff we purchased often. all of Rossi's because we want people to reproduce that Amazing. you know um, so we've got a lot of good stuff on the website you got to kind of maneuver around to get to this literature and studies section and we've got maybe I want to say 90 videos on YouTube so people want to just wow. get the quick snapshot of whatever it is that they're dealing with if they go to the physio or the podiatrist the chiropractor and they're told they got a bunion or a hammer toe or whatever we've got clear concise four to five minute videos on those entities cool. where you can get the natural approach to that um so hope your audience can use that as a resource too yeah we have tons of those as part of uh the video resources for the health nerd program of the foot module it's like there's tons of your stuff in there a mm -hmm. lot of the rossi articles too because i think mm -hmm. it's just really powerful literature to read it from the source even though it's like in in today's terms ancient in terms of timeline but it's more current now than i think ever before because it really is you know i just look at learning now as unlearning it's like taking away all the crap that's been layered on the complexity that's been layered on and understanding at a fundamental level what are the truths that we can that we can understand and and frame in the realm of like okay it's science-based it's logic it's common sense it abides by laws of physiology this makes sense totally I'm going to try it. And when you try it and you experience it and you see firsthand, then you're like, okay, this is the truth mm. until I'm proven otherwise, which I think you always have to be open-minded to be proven otherwise. You should. Um, and then and then the natural foot health Institute. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, um, because of the success of this work, we get people from all over the country saying, well, I went to my local healthcare provider and they told me it's in my family or they want to do an operation or do something traditional. So what we really want to do is similar to what you guys are doing with your foot nerd program. We don't want everybody to have to come to Portland, Oregon. You right. know, we want people to be able to 
Well, primarily we'd like people to go on the website and just do a thorough education. I think I, I literally have a goal for our clinic that we build out our website to be so straightforward and clear that an elementary school person could read it and yeah. understand it. But what the foot uh, health Institute is all about is really trying to empower it's a certification program. So we teach a two day course, we do hands-on stuff, and then we give an exam at the end, basically covering most of what we've talked about today. Because if, if those folks can go back to their communities and just cover this, mm-hmm. like we said at the outset of the podcast, just give the proper education, help people with their, with their footwear purchases, so much good can be done. I agree. You know, so that's really what we want to do. And it doesn't matter who you are. You don't, in fact, it's largely not podiatrists right Right. now. It's a lot of massage therapists and physios and chiropractors and body workers and reflexologists that Mm. again, it's not counter to what they're doing to make money or it's not counter to do to their curriculum. Um, So that's our goal is that next time somebody calls us from some city and says, I don't really want to fly out there. I guess I could do a peripheral consult. I live here. We hope to have somebody there right. that is on the website. And once we get that call or that email, we reach out to our partner our, our, um, and say to them, you know, we've got somebody in your community that needs somebody like you and, right. and partner them and just build from there. That's exactly our goal with the health center program is be able to have people in certain areas that can be nodes, you know, that are connected to this hive mind, a central information database that can be shared and interpreted amongst this like global tribe of people that are on the same page with wanting to do better when it comes to health and then have these individuals be in their community and be the individual node to transmit that information to their community so we'll have to figure out i mean i'm sure we'll align forces more and more and more and um because our goal with tfc app is to build a registry of people Mm -hmm. that the public can go to and find someone in their area by proximity or whatever it is um, and have there be some sort of quality standard where the understanding is that person has gone through this program. This is what's involved with the program. This is what they've had to gone through. They've had to do a practical and a, and a verbal exam to make sure they understand the basics and can articulate this stuff. And then to direct people there so that you're right, it's building other communities so that not everyone, because you don't want to be the bottleneck to this information, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think the digital world is a powerful thing because your website is literally accessible to anyone mm-hmm. and it's free. And I think that's powerful. It's just now you just got to let people know what's available there and the value of the information that's there for them to be able to start their personal health journey, their personal mm-hmm. transformation. And, you know, I think there is always a role or a lot of times there's a role for a health professional as someone that can give some accountability or clarify, mm-hmm. right? Like you have this overwhelming amount of information available. Sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, well, how do I deduce my own personal map from this, this mega map that right. I just learned? And, um, but at minimum, if you go to a health professional and you're already informed of the base fundamentals, number one, you get way more from that visit because you have more context to put their advice into. And number two, you can determine whether or not the person you're going to see is actually giving you kind of the right advice, right? Because if you have foot problems and you go see someone for those foot problems and there's no conversation about footwear happening, that person's probably not informed enough to be really effective to actually help you. So it's either way, more educated public, is better on every front, even if they eventually go see a health professional, which is not, they still have a place, just like orthotics still have a place, but it has to be within the context of the greater picture of, we gotta understand the causes, we gotta give people advice on how to start fixing those problems themselves, because only they can make themselves healthy. Um, and, and that's really how progress happens. And it's, it's cool because progress is when you're in it, sometimes it doesn't feel like things are moving in the right direction, but then you look back in hindsight, you're like, wow, things are changing a lot. Information is getting out there. 
Um, I think people like ourselves blending forces and having a bigger presence as a as a whole instead of individual parts. You know, so anyway, stay stay on the lookout for some sort of partnership between a bunch of different entities like ourselves coming together to form kind of a, a, a unit which can then have a bigger force for change. Mm-hmm. So um, thanks again, Ray. It was an awesome weekend. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to the next one meeting up, jumping in some cold water again. And me too. Um, having to work on my beam skills so that you don't show me up. Next Are time. you kidding me? <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> anyway, folks, I hope you enjoyed that and it gave you some information you can apply in your lives and we'll catch you next week.